Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Larry Habiger. We have a wonderful evening for you coming up with Carla Gambesha and Leading Ladies of the Renaissance. Carla lives in Chappaqua, New York, and has just flown in to give us this presentation. So please welcome Carla. Welcome. I'm Carla. And I'm the author of La Dolce Vita University, An Unconventional Guide to Italian Culture from A to Z. And it's sort of not your normal, I bought a villa in Tuscany sort of book about Italy. Um, in fact, uh, it's a, uh, an eclectic collection of 165 mini essays about food, wine, art, history, all different aspects of Italian culture. And when I wrote this book, my intention was to share particular things that I found surprising or intriguing and things that I felt would enliven your experience and your appreciation of all that's Italian regardless of what aspect of Italian culture really turns you on. And um, I I think of this book as kind of like an Italian cultural trivial pursuit. And it's a super fun read. You can pick it up and put it down. It's perfect for bedtime reading, you know, because you can lose your place and it doesn't really matter because you just like move on to another essay. And it's really meant for anyone who loves Italy. And I believe that all of us, regardless of our ethnicity share an inner Italian. And I believe the inner Italian is that part of us that falls in love most easily, that is most joyful and spontaneous and expressive. So what I'm going to be doing today and this evening is to weave together a series of La Dolce Vita University's mini essays, and I'm going to tell you a bigger story, and we're going to explore how the concept of today's modern woman took root in the Renaissance in none other than La Bella Italia. And we're also going to explore some intriguing backstories of some of the Renaissance's most iconic works of art. So the Renaissance, first in Italy and then in the rest of Europe, was the critical inflection point for women in the Western world. That pivotal moment in history when the philosophical foundation was laid for the modern woman, the woman who would ultimately have the option to move from the private domestic sphere to the public sphere or to move between the two and to realize her fullest potential. To fully understand this underappreciated aspect of the Renaissance, I'd like to offer some historical context first. So it's tempting to say that the women of the ancient world were devoid of all influence. That would be a, a, a bit of a mischaracterization. It would be more accurate to say the role of women was highly circumscribed within the domestic realm, where in the case sorry, of patrician women, they ruled the roost and managed diverse functions overseeing large households and large household staffs, and often did so unchallenged 
single-handedly and with great authority. A good Roman woman was an inconspicuous woman who would instinctively cast her eyes downward in public and would not be ostentatious in any way. Her jewels were her children. It speaks volumes that the names of daughters typically were derived from the names of their fathers. For example, Julius Caesar had two daughters, and they were both named Julia. Little surprise that so few prominent female names are associated with ancient Rome, and those that are were definite outliers. So we're going to look at two of them. The first is Cleopatra. Now, the legendary queen of Egypt wasn't Roman. She wasn't even Egyptian. In fact, she was a Macedonian Greek of the Ptolemy line, and the first Ptolemy to ever speak Egyptian. At the time of her rule, Egypt was a client state of Rome. Cleopatra was famously and intimately associated with two legendary Romans, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. But what most distinguishes Cleopatra is how atypical she was as a woman in the male-dominated world of her time. She was not just a public figure, but she was a leader of a nation and hence of men. She had a shrewd military mind and was the commander-in-chief of a powerful navy. She was highly educated and fluent in nine languages. But most notably, Cleopatra was a supremely self-confident woman who embraced public display and created a spectacle wherever she went. Perhaps nothing since Cleopatra has rivaled the utter lavishness of her royal events and processions. Not surprisingly, this made her a suspect. Now, we'll get to that later. The next Roman woman I want to speak about is um, someone I actually discovered. I stumbled upon this amazing room. It's like twice the size of this room in Piazza, um, at, in um, Palazzo Massimo, which is the archaeological museum in Rome. And these are frescoes from the summer dining room of Livia Drusilla. So I'm like, who is Livia? Mm-hmm. So Livia was the wife of Augustus, the first Roman emperor, emperor, and was a formidable person in her own right. She was 11 years younger than Cleopatra, but li- lived 59 years longer. She lived till she was 83, which was really amazing for Roman times. So she was born Livia Drusilla, and she married Augustus when she was pregnant with her second child by her first husband. So this is like weird, right? This was the time of the second triumvirate. And Livia was higher born than Augustus, and a marriage to her really helped him solidify his political position. So Augustus asked the pregnant Livia's husband for her hand in marriage, and he agreed. I mean, I don't know what they traded for, but it was like kind of cattle trading, right? So during Augustus's 40-year rule, which followed, Livia served as his most valued confidant and his principal advisor and his effective stand-in during his frequent absences from Rome. After his death, she was the powerful regent to his successor, her son Tiberius, who she had Augustus adopt before his death. But Tiberius didn't really like this. It's like he had mother issues and he moved off to Capri. Um, But ultimately, Livia was deified and she's really, um, she's the only woman to have ever been um, deified for her service to Rome. So now, as highly competent 
and gifted as these two very different women were, neither could have achieved their ultimate influence without the rare advantages of a royal lineage, high birth, or an auspicious marriage. And not surprisingly, their talents and their accomplishments and their very legitimacy was viewed with great suspicion by the men and the women of their time. And they were subject to the most salacious of rumors. Oh, that's Livia, sorry. So, okay, so we have Cleopatra, right? She's a sorceress. She's a sex kitten. She's a slut. She entices with sex and opium, and even worse, she was a foreigner, and she had a child by Julius Caesar. This made her like a triple-triple threat. And then in the case of Livia, who you might remember from I, Claudius, she's shrewd, she's cunning, she's conniving, she's the manipulative wife, the over-controlling mother, the perpetrator of many poisonings. People thought she poisoned people that were like a thousand miles away. So you get the picture. So now I want to advance in time to the early Christian era through the Middle Ages. Now, th- these are mosaics from a beautiful church, Santa Maria in Trastevere. And this was the first church dedicated to a woman, and its foundation was laid in the 3rd century A.D. So in the first 13 centuries A.D., women of all classes were afforded one principal route to influence outside the home, and that was through the church. And women were afforded one principal route to lasting recognition, um, and that was through sainthood. Okay, so I did this little study. What was the ratio of male to female saints? You know, because if there was, it was like how they were in real life, it might be 95 to 5. But an interesting thing occurred it was more like 60-40, so it wasn't like great, but it really wasn't so bad. But anyway, there were two uh, kinds of saints, um, and in the early centuries of Christian persecution, there were the virgin martyrs, and then later in the Christian-dominated century, there were what I call the mystic sisters. So I want to look at two of these saints. So the first is Saint Lucia of uh, Syracuse. And she lived during the Doclatian period. Now, she had concentrated her virginity to God and hoped to distribute her dowry to the poor. All of this was unbeknownst to mom, who had promised Lucia in marriage to the son of a wealthy pagan. Okay, so once the groom heard of Livia's, uh, Lucia's plans, he demanded that she renounce her faith. But Lucia was steadfast and refused and subsequently refused to accept the penalty of being defiled in a brothel. Um, then they came for her, and she was nearly indomitable. Oxen couldn't move her, fire couldn't burn her, and eventually she was felled by a sword. Go figure. But anyway, the plucked eyes are what you always see associated with Lucia. So what does that have to do with the story? So what happened was, about a thousand years later, She became really popular in Sicily. There was a famine, and the account kind of got revised to more reflect those times. And the revised story is Lucia is devout. She's chaste. A A pagan man is enthralled by her beauty, her eyes in particular, and he courts her relentlessly, but she remains steadfast. And to discourage him, she plucks out her eyes. And this causes him to convert. 
Um, but then miraculously she's healed and she's also like the patron saint of eyesight. Today, Lucia is one of eight women along with the Virgin Mary who's commemorated in the canon of the mass. So I want to also talk about St. Catherine of Siena, um, who, uh, lived in, um, the late, uh, 13th century. Now you can visit her home in Siena. It's still standing and these frescoes are painted on the wall and they tell the story of Cat, Catherine's life. Um, she was the 24th of a family of 25 and she was a very joyful child. Her fi- first visions there, she's floating of Christ came when she was seven. And then later she pledges her life to Christ and she cuts off her hair to discourage suitors. And then at 19, this is the myth, myth, mythic marriage of St. Catherine to Christ. And she has the vision of uh, a ring being placed on her finger. And she became not a nun, but a, a Dominican tertiary, which is not really a nun. They have like freedom to live at home um, and say so can move around. And at this point, she undertook a lot of charitable work for the poor and earned a reputation for her holiness and severe asceticism. And she was probably anorexic because she was a wee bit of a thing. And then at age 30, um, she received the call to embark on a more public life. And she did this through prodigious letter writing. Um, and uh, they began with missives to Pope Gregory Eleventh, who she addressed as Papa. And this was the time of the schism. And in her letters, she exhorted him to return the papacy from Avignon to Rome. And she said, since God has given you authority and you have assumed it, you should use your power. And if you are not willing to use it, it would be better for you to resign. In other words, come back home where you belong or quit your day job. So she was bold. And she was also maybe even the first to practice shuttle, shuttle diplomacy. She went back and forth to Avignon, pressing her case with the pontiff, and ultimately played a role in healing the schism. And after that, she carried on missions entrusted by Pope Urban, which was something very rare for a simple nun, a waif-like woman in the Middle Ages. She let, later dictated her major work, The Dialogues, which were her conversations with God during her ecstatic states. And even today, she's considered one of the most influential writers in Catholicism and one of only four women to be declared, to be, to be, to be declared a doctor of the church, which is the highest honor awarded for intellectual and doctrinal contributions. And along with St. Francis of Assisi, Catherine of Siena is one of Italy's two patron saints. Now, as remarkable, uh, here's her later, um, and even formidable as these and other female saints were, their authority and influence would be viewed as inspired by or even originating from a male god rather than a product of their holy personal agency. So they were viewed as vessels of the divine. But that would soon begin to change. So it may surprise you when I say the Renaissance was the turning point for women, since no women readily come to mind when I say the Renaissance, while, you know, a lot of men do. 
The names of the Renaissance that most immediately come to mind are names of men. Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael, Donatello, Lorenzo de' Medici, Brunelleschi. And the Renaissance itself was named by a man, Giorgio Vasari, while, as it was taking place. And its dates bracket the birth of one man, Masaccio, and the death of still another man, Galileo. And think of the term Renaissance man also known as universal man, an ideal which considered male man as the center of the universe, limitless in its capacity for reason and creativity. And the term Renaissance man has probably been most often applied to the polymath Leonardo da Vinci, who just happened to create the image of Vitruvian man, the quintessential symbol or maybe logo of the Renaissance. And if the Renaissance had a slogan, it might have been the declaration, man is the measure of all things. But here's where we have our opening, because man in this context means humankind, not just males. So the philosophy and practice of humanism was perhaps the transcending gift of the Italian Renaissance to mankind and to womankind, because it focused first and foremost, on our shared capacity for uh, creativity and growth. So let me complete this picture with an equally iconic image. So we have the birth of Venus. And let me quote the writer Gaia Savadio in her book, Renaissance Women. Okay. The Renaissance created a new vision of womanhood. It also created the modern woman. She rose from the foam of the waves of the Renaissance, just like the Venus painted by Botticelli, naked and innocent, ready to awake to a world that so far had passed her by. Now, as it happens, the Venus you see here in Botticelli's famous painting from the Uffizi was an actual woman living in Renaissance Florence, and she's the first of our leading ladies of the Renaissance and the first of three Italian women who I call the muses. And I'm going to follow that with three leading ladies who I call the avatars. So you may not have known Simonetta Vespucci's name, but her face is immortal. And it's one of the most recognized images in art history. It's not only the face of Venus, but it's also one of the three graces, the center there um, in Botticelli's Primavera. So Botticelli also painted several portraits of Simonetta as well as other artists. Now, she was born in a Ligurian town south of Genoa called Porto Venere, which coincidentally means Port of Venus. And as a teenager, she moved to Florence and married a cousin of Americo Vespucci and became an instant sensation with the money class in the Medici. And as you can see, she had like really great hair. And um, for a jousting tournament in 1475, Giuliano de Medici, Lorenzo, uh, Lorenzo il Magnifico, uh, his brother, commissioned the painting of a banner by none other than Botticelli of Simonetta as helmeted Athena, bearing the inscription in Latin, the unparalleled one. Thereafter, she became known as the most beautiful woman in Florence and later the entire Renaissance. 
Now, Simonetta never officially posed for Botticelli, but her effect on him was profound. She represented not only his muse from afar, but also the perfect model for the prevailing Neoplatonic belief in spiritual uplift through love, harmony, and idealized beauty. So I just want to like kind of depart a minute just to take a look at Primavera, which uh, um, was painted as a companion piece to the birth of Venus. And this is one of my favorite paintings like ever. And one of just an interesting fun fact, there are 500 different species of plants that have been identified in this painting and 190 flowers. And this is like the, the birth of spring, that blue gentleman on the on the left there, he's a Zephyrus and he kidnaps Chloris and their little relationships consummated. Spring is born. There's Venus and the graces. But anyway, I'm sorry I departed, but I love that painting. Um, but anyway, getting back to Botticelli and Simonetta, their relationship was completely platonic, though it's been believed that she had an affair with Giuliano. Um, yet she and Botticelli are united in death. She died of consumption at only 23 years old. When Botticelli died 34 years later, at his request, uh, his request was granted that he be buried at Simonetta's feet. And you can see his um, his grave um, in uh, Florence's Church of All Saints, which was the parish church of the Vespucci. So um, Botticelli wasn't the only um, artist to celebrate Simonetta's beauty. This is a painting by Piero di Cosimo as with um, Simonetta as none other than Cleopatra. So the second muse I want to talk about is Raphael's muse, uh, and her name was Margarita Lutti. Now, if Botticelli's muse was an idealized woman, woman, Raphael's muse was very much of this world and of flesh incarnate. So Raphael was an artistic superstar. He was born in Urbino, and he was a master painter by the time he was 17. He was known as the Prince of Painters and said to have painted with the most graceful of grace. And he moved to Florence, and then he was soon summoned to Rome by Julius II to paint the um, Vatican stanza and the school of Athens. Now, Raphael was the epitome of the perfect gentleman. He was talented. He was affable. He was drop-dead gorgeous, and he was the toast of the town. His work was in high demand. He lived like a prince. He worked for the rich and famous, and he was quite the ladies' man. Vasari described him as a, quote, most amorous man who is fond of women and always quick to serve them. And the story goes that Raphael first saw Margarita, and she was a simple baker's daughter, washing her feet in an outdoor fountain in Trastevere. He was instantly captivated by her dark-eyed beauty and asked her father's permission um, that she serve as a model, and her father agreed. So um, Margarita can be seen in many roles in Raphael's painting. That's the Madonna of the Chair, Madonna Velata, many other paintings. But Raphael's passion was not just an aesthetic passion for the beautiful baker's daughter. In fact, said Vasari, 
When commissioned to decorate the Villa Farnesina, Raphael was unable to dedicate himself properly to his work due to his singular preoccupation with Margarita until she was allowed to come and live at his side. So paint in the morning, a little afternoon delight, paint some more. Okay, so we have this picture. It's like very passionate love affair. But it gets more complicated because there was a really big but. Okay, Raphael was officially engaged to another woman, the niece of one of his famous and wealthy patrons, uh, Cardinal Dolvizi. After all, someone of Raphael's stature and fame would be expected to marry a woman from the upper class. So he kept postponing the marriage. I have to paint the stanza. I have to paint Galatea. So he kept putting off the marriage for seven years, okay, until he actually died. Okay, so this this is all true. He's 37. He dies on Good Friday. All of Rome weeps and mourns. And Vasari goes as far to suggest, Vasari reads like, you know, the National Enquirer, um, that his amorous appetites for Margarita were taken to excess. It caused a fever that ultimately killed him. Whatever. Okay, but we have here um, uh, this painting um, uh, known as La Fornarina, uh, and it's the painting there on the right. It was only discovered hidden in Raphael's studio at the time of his pose and, uh, his death. And you'll notice the similar pose to, um, uh, 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 the Velata there. And, um, it, it's been, um, suggested that they were secretly wed. And there are several, uh, clues in the canvas here. So the pearl pendant in her turban is the sort of expensive bauble a woman would wear on her wedding day. And a pearl makes sense because her name was Margarita. Margarita means pearl. You can't really see, but there's Myrtle, Myrtle and Quince in the background, which were symbols of love, fecundity, and fidelity. Her hand is on her left breast, and it's pointing to Raphael's name on this narrow armband. It's a really weird way to sign a painting. You know, I am yours, you are mine. And then finally, a cleaning revealed that she had a, a ruby ring on her third finger. And the ring was light, likely painted over by Raphael's students after his death in order to prevent a scandal. So if Botticelli was united with Simonetta after death, um, Raphael was less fortunate. Now, he's buried in the Pantheone, a place of highest honor. But he's buried alongside of Maria Bibbinini, his long-suffering fiance of seven years. Now, as for Margarita, four months after the artist's death in 1520, the convent of St. Apollonia in Rome's Trastevere registered the arrival of the widow Margarita, daughter of the Sienese baker. And she too would be dead two years later at just 23. Um, now, while Raphael and his true love are not united in their place of burial, they were reunited um, on two canvases 300 years later by French artist Jean-Auguste Dominique Angre. Now, our third muse is Vittoria Colonna, and she lived 1492 to 1547. If Simonetta was Botticelli's divine inspiration, and Margarita was Raphael's embodiment of true romantic love. Our third muse, Vittoria Colonna, was Michelangelo's eternal soulmate. 
and the woman he revered as much, if not more, for her mind than her physical beauty. That drawing is by Michelangelo. Um, like Simonetta, Vittoria Colonna was high-born, and she married well. She was the Marquesa de Pes Pescara, which is in Abruzzo, highly educated. Now, at the time her friendship with Michelangelo began in earnest, she was a widow of 48, and by then Michelangelo was 60, 63. Now, she was very uh, well-known and respected poet, considered by many to be the finest poet of her time, and a friend to many prominent men. Now, it's kind of interesting because there was no, like, real gender gap or in poetry. So if you were educated, man or woman, you could write poetry. Um, Vittoria was religiously devout, and uh, after her uh, the death of her husband, um, she lived in convents, and she donned the drab habit of a Franciscan monk. Now, Michelangelo was also very devout, and he was um, famously, he's already famous, but he was sullen, he was a reclusive curmudgeon, often bombastic, when angry, he yelled at popes, all of this. Um, but he had completely come to neglect his personal grooming and appearance by this time. So this love affair between this very curious couple was, you know, entirely platonic, but it was nonetheless an intimate and passionate relationship based on the deepest mutual admiration and having a uniquely spiritual ardor. Michelangelo, who had no time for anyone outside his prodigious artistic labors, always had time for Simonetta. And at one point, she implored him to write to her less often, otherwise neither would have time for their work. Now, Vittoria was the only person he allowed access to the Sistine Chapel while he was painting The Last Judgment. It took him nine years to paint The Last Judgment, and The Last Judgment is, like, simply amazing. I hate that this slide just doesn't capture the amazingness of this fresco. Um, this, for perspective, the ceiling took four years to complete, and um, uh, I really consider this his masterwork. Now, what's interesting is that they had a lot of conversations about interpretation of scripture, and a lot of that is reflected in what's going on um, in this painting. And uh, not coincidentally, Vittoria would be featured as the Virgin Mary in this astonishing fresco. Michelangelo is also featured, and he has this um, self-deprecating um, self-portrait. You see him on the side of the damned and um, he's flayed. Beside their frequent correspondence and in-person encounters, the two exchanged poetry with one another, and Michelangelo was a fine poet, too. Um, he bound all of Vittoria's sonnets in leather and kept the book, his most precious possession, um, along with her letters, uh, by his bedside, and they were all with him on his deathbed. Um, one of Michelangelo's early letters to Vittoria, he said this, It is not a mortal object that struck my view when, for the first time, your eyes fixed on mine. The old master would actually outlive his eternal soulmate, and in her 55th year, Vittoria Colonna died in Michelangelo's arms.
So Gaia Savadio in Renaissance Women said this. She was the one person with whom the silent, morose painter would communicate. And in his eyes, she was his equal in intellect and his peer in spirituality. So three little-known women, three unconventional love stories. Each woman, each woman in her own distinctive way was inspired by uh, or admired by and inspired by some of the greatest artists and some of the most um, iconic and treasured works of Renaissance art. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Next, we're going to look at three Italian women who stepped far beyond the men in their lives. And I call these women the avatars. The first is Isabella d'Est. And she lived contemporaneous with um, uh, with uh, Vittoria. And she was painted by the likes of Montagna, Titian, Rubens, and even Leonardo. Isabella was a woman of destiny and declared by her prominent 16th century male contemporaries to be supreme among women and first lady of the world. Much is known about the coming and goings of Isabella's eventful life because she was a prodigious letter writer and 2,000 letters survive. Um, no woman was better prepared for being a, um, uh, a leading woman of her time. She was the firstborn of six children by the ruling family of Ferrara. She had enlightened parents who believed in educating their sons and daughters equally. And as a result, she received a classical education unparalleled for, for both women and men of her time. And at 16, she was so confident and so well-versed in politics that she debated with ambassadors. Her marriage at age 16 to Francesco Gonzaga, the Marquis of Mantua, um, one of the most formidable condottieri on the peninsula, was a cause for great celebration, uniting two very powerful families. Now, the marriage was very happy at first. It produced eight children, six of whom survived. And under their reign and under Isabella's orchestration, the culture of life at Mantua thrived with patronage of painters, poets, musicians, a salon of writers, and philosophers. Um, Isabella was also a fashion avatar, sort of Jackie O of the Renaissance. This is from a famous painting by Titian, um, and um, she was known for her signature plunging necklines, her penchant for furs, perfumes, and decorative turban-like headdress. And her living quarters are now a museum with paintings by Bellini, Giorgione, Raphael, and Perugino. Um, however, their, the marriage fell under a shadow. She discovered love letters between her husband and Lucretia Borgia, who was married to her brother-in-law. And then later, um, Isabella truly came into her own as a diplomat and one of um, the leading political mover, movers and shakers of the Renaissance. 
Francesco was uh, captured and imprisoned by King Charles VII of France, at which time Isabella served as regent and de facto ru- uh, ruler of Mantua. And she had to defend Mantua uh, and act as its military commander to protect it against the French. And she single-handedly negotiated a, b- a peace treaty with the King of France and ultimately secured her husband's safe return, none of which helped the marriage. So Isabella's political acumen and diplomatic skills greatly eclipsed eclipsed those of her husband. And um, after Francesco's death, she continued on as regent for her eldest son, who kept her involved because she was wise and so beloved by the people of Mantua. And it was she who arranged to have Mantua promoted to a duchy. And what that's really all about, it's like obtaining statehood and making it a sovereign and independent territory. So it's, it's a big deal. Um, related to every ruler in Europe by birth or marriage, and a highly effective ruler in her own right, Isabella was the greatest female power broker to appear on the continent since Livia 1,500 years earlier. Now, there is a sketch uh, in the Louvre of Isabella, and it was always a mystery. Where's the painting that's associated with this sketch? And some even speculated that it may have been a preparatory study for the Mona Lisa. Well, in 2013, the art world was a Twitter with excitement when Leonardo's missing portrait was discovered in a Swiss bank vault of an Italian family. And so there we have Isabella when she's quite young. So Isabella, very few people have been painted by Leonardo. Um, Isabella is also memorialized in the Brooklyn Museum of Art in a work called The Dinner Party. And this is an installation artwork by feminist artist Judy Chicago, widely regarded as the first epic feminist artwork. And it functions as a symbolic history of women in the West and Western civilization. So it's amazing. It's a really big room and you have this triangular table. And on one side of the triangle are strong women from the Bible and mythology. And then you have the modern era. And then you have like the other triangle is everything in between. And there's 13, um, table settings. Uh, and then each table setting is, it represents, um, the personality of the women. So, um, Isabella has a place at this table. That's her table setting. Now, our second avatar, uh, is a name you, you might have associated with the Renaissance, Caterina de' Medici. And she lived 1519 to 1589. And like both Livia and Isabella before her, Caterina became a de facto ruler when her husband, Henry II, King of France, predeceased her. But unlike Livia and Isabella, Caterina had a decidedly mixed record of accomplishment on the political stage. And she was most effective at really retaining and consolidating power after her husband's death. But uh, moreover, she's um, associated with some of the worst sectarian violence of her time, um, having either instigated or directly ordered the famous St. Bartholomew Day massacre, which ultimately resulted in the death of several thousand French Protestants. 
But Katerina's more lasting and decidedly more positive legacy comes from a different realm of influence, that of culture, style, and the culinary arts. So uh, it's no exaggeration to say that Katerina de' Medici was the queen who refined the French. She grew up without parents. Um, both of her parents died by the time she was three weeks old, but her Medici grandfather was a cardinal who soon became Pope Clement VII, and he saw to her upbringing and education. And by age 14, she was considered one of the most cultured women of her day and most marriageable. And at 14, she was married um, to Henri of Orleans, son of King Francis I of France. Now, uh, Henry was not much interested in Katerina, she wasn't like much of a looker. He had this beautiful, long-standing mistress, um, Diane de Potier, who was actually 20 years older than he was and his tutor, sort of this uncanny parallel with uh, Macron. <laughs> but <laughs> it's right. History repeats, right? Um, however, um, Katerina became like an immediate favorite with her father-in-law, the king, he admired her equestrian skills. She reputedly uh, invented the side saddle, but she had social graces. She had an educated mind, and she was admitted into his inner circle. Now, the first decade of the marriage produced no children, so her, she was only fourteen, right? And he was, and he was busy, you know, with Diane. But eventually, she made up with a, a brood of ten children. Um, and uh, But it was during that first decade of her marriage where she really began to upgrade the culture of the French court and ultimately French society. Now, here are some surprising non-culinary examples of things she brought to France. She brought Italian dance masters. So ballet actually comes from France, uh, from Italy, and she brought it to France. She inspired the fashion sensation High Heels, that made their fashion debut on 1533 on the day of her wedding. Not to mention the adoption of the bathtub, of perfumes, and of fine lingerie. All these things we think of as very Frenchy. So she also had a hand in several notable architectural achievements. She helped design the Garden of the Tuileries, a wing in the Louvre, and the Chateau at Monceau and Chenonceau. And um, here are just a few of her culinary contributions to France. She brought the fork, which had come to Italy by way of the Byzantine Empire and Venice, as well as more sophisticated dining features like Venetian glass goblets, also using spices for flavoring food. Normally, spices were used to mask spoilage, but this was to enhance foods. So, duck l'orange, it's very Katerina. And um, new ingredients. She So her, her dowry, she came like with vegetables. So she had broccoli, beans, savory cabbage, artichokes and truffles. They were all part of her dowry. And her chefs were also part of her dowry. And also new dishes. So whenever you see a la Fiorentina, it means with spinach. She loves spinach. A la Fiorentina means, you know, like, you know, commemorating Katerina. And also menus and menu planning. Abigail Adams once exhorted her husband to, quote, remember the ladies. And Katerina did just that in her own way by allowing women 
of the court for the first time ever to be enter into the dining room. Also, she was like loved artichokes. And it was really considered verboten that a woman should eat artichokes, certainly not in public because they were kind of phallic, but she loved artichokes and she, you know, encouraged all her ladies in waiting to also eat artichokes. So it's a little bit ironic, but sort of understandable, like with the Huguenot thing, that Katerina is the only one of our three Renaissance avatars who does not rate a place at Judy Chicago's dinner party. However, 70 miles up the Hudson River at the Culinary Institute of America at Hyde Park, the leading dining establishment is named none other than Restaurante Catarina de Medici. So our third avatar is Artemisia Genaleski. Now, she was born at the very, very, very tail end of the Renaissance. Um, and unlike Isabella or Katerina, Artemisia was not highborn. But like Isabella and Katerina, she did receive quite an education, but of an entirely different sort. Artemisia's mother died when she was 12, but she was very attached to her father, who was a respected painter, Arazia Genaleski, who very much encouraged her in, her interest and oversaw um, her tutelage in the art of painting. And this was a completely unusual pursuit for women because the vocation of painting was seen as a man's occupation, you know, it's physical work and given the exclusivity of the male guild system. Um, but Artemisia's talent would not be denied. At just age 17, she painted this stunning Susanna and the Elders. Now, this is based on an Old Testament story that would eerily foreshadow her own life story. So, biblical Susanna was a fair Hebrew wife, and she was spied on at her back by two lecherous elders who pressed her for sexual favors in exchange for their silence about a fabricated adulterous liaison on her part. Virtuous Susanna refused their blackmail, and her false accusers were eventually exposed and paid for with their lives. Artemisia's own real-life Me Too moment occurred just two years later, but with a decidedly different outcome. Florentine muralist Augustino Tazzi, who hired her, who was, he was hired by her father to tutor her in perspective, raped Artemisia. Then he falsely accused her of having numerous lovers prior to that event. So she told her father, and her father brought charges against Tazi. She then endured the ordeal of a seven-month highly publicized public rape trial in which she had to testify against her accuser in public and had to undergo a humiliating public physical examination. And on the eventual testimony of one of Tazi's friends, to whom he had bragged about the assault, Tazi was convicted. But he spent less than a year in jail for his crime and was banished from Rome, but it was never enforced. Meanwhile, Artemisia's reputation was in tatters. But during the time of the trial, Artemisia painted another biblical episode. 
And this is the story of Judith beheading Holofernes. Now, the story of Judith and Holofernes, Holofernes is an Assyrian general, and he has designs on the territory and Judith's tribe, and he, like, makes, you know, he's interested in her, and she agrees to come back to his tent, and so she drugs his wine, and when he falls asleep, okay, so here we have Artemisia, and it's a self-portrait, she is Judith, and the head of Holon Furnace is none other than the face of Augustino Tazi. So after the trial, um, her father arranged that she moved to Florence and she married a prosaic, uh, prosaic Florentine painter. They had five children. She had one surviving daughter and there she learned to read and write and she was accepted in, in an intellectual circuit circles there. She, she became really close friends with Galileo. They exchanged many letters. Um, and like, um, Isabella, um, Artemisia's talent greatly eclipsed her husband. And ultimately they parted and he left, he left her. She was in Florence, but she would go on to establish her independent status as an artist. And she took on many commissions and gained the patronage of Grand Duke Cosimo II, the Medici of Florence, and became the first woman admitted to Florence's Accademia dell'Arte del Disegno, the Academy of Art and Design. So Artemisia had shattered the canvas ceiling. So um, it, her her story is amazing, and it it's it's it often overshadows her art. And she's a great artist, uh, a Baroque great. And sometimes I see her paintings, and I'm like, wow, she's like kind of almost like Caravaggio. She's really uh, amazing. Um, and, um, she, uh, really uh, favors biblical and mythological subjects with strong women. This is a self-portrait of Artemisia as, uh, Catherine of Alexandria. It was just acquired by the National Gallery in London. And the story of, of Catherine of Alexandria is most apt. Um, Catherine was to be martyred on the wheel, but they put her on the wheel. And instead of being broken by the wheel, she broke the wheel. Now, um, Judith, um, Artemisia painted Judith for a second time, this time for Grand Duke Cosimo. You can see it in the Uffizi. And I decided I couldn't resist this fun juxtaposition. So this is like Botticelli's treatment of the same subject. I remember when I first saw that painting, I'm like, wow, are they like on a picnic or what? But you can see it's like very lilting, but you know, Holland Furnace, he's there on her, her maid's, she's carrying on it. Anyway, so <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Um, anyway, uh, she moved on to Naples and she established a successful workshop. Um, again, remarkable for a woman, um, who wasn't employed by a royal court or enjoyed the protection of a wealthy or influential husband. She later traveled to London and helped her dying father finish the com- um, a commission for the Queen's Palace in Greenwich. So she died at 60 in Naples, and there are 60 known works of art. Remarkably, she only had her first retrospective in 2012 in Milan. Now, not surprisingly, 
Artemisia does have a seat at Judith's dinner party. But what's the coolest about this is I mentioned there are biblical women, um, but Artemisia faces directly and can see Judith from where she's sitting. Uh, not only does Artemisia have a central place at the table, but in an important place in Italian cultural history. She said of herself in one of her letters, I have the spirit of Caesar and the soul of a woman. So what can we conclude? Some truly amazing women lived during the Renaissance. But great women of great promise and talent have lived throughout the course of history. And just like all other times, the women who left the greatest mark on history often had the advantage of high birth or an extraordinary education or both. So what's so noteworthy about the Renaissance? And why consider the Renaissance the inflection point in the history of women? Well, I believe the difference is less in the great things these women achieved and more in how these achievements began to be viewed by their counterparts. In classical times, the rare woman of influence and power was viewed with great suspicion as typically aberrant, somehow sinister, and in medieval times, women of great influence or accomplishment were almost exclusively in the religious realm, and they were viewed as vessels of a higher divine patriarchal power and not the source of their own achievements. But during the Renaissance, extraordinary women began to be seen as just that, extraordinary women. Prejudice certainly lingered. Nobody flipped the switch. But during the Renaissance, women of accomplishment were increasingly, and perhaps for the first time, seen as having realized their human potential. Prior to the Renaissance, powerful and accomplished women were explained or explained away as a force of either malevolent or divine non-human nature. But during the Renaissance, powerful and accomplished women for the first time were seen as something else and something more. They were seen not just as a force, but a factor and important participants in the well-being and advancement of the societies in which they lived. And in the process, they became more human. And at long last, began to be recognized, appreciated, and admired for their individual abilities, their creativity, and their own personal accomplishments. So history doesn't move in a straight line and advances in the perception of women's potential and accomplishments would advance and recede two steps forward, one step back. But for the first time in history, society began to recognize and accept and honor women's innate human potential. And there was no turning back. So if there's a single word that speaks to the character and contribution of a number of these trailblazing women to their time and to the world, that word is indomitable. So, mille grazie.
Thank you, Carla. I'm sure we have some questions in the audience. Uh, so here's, here's one right here. Speculate just a little bit how it is that with various periods of our history, various movements from the Renaissance to the expat artists in Paris to the black Renaissance in our own country, the, the men shine and, and uh, the women are overshadowed and excluded. Is there a theme or a dynamic that you see in that sort of experience that would help us understand why women don't get um, the seat in the light? that the men of the same period or movement do? Uh, that's kind of a, that's a, that's a tough one. And, um, Sorry. I, I struggled, I struggled to answer that. And I guess I, I kind of feel we just have to work harder. Um, but do you have an idea? Uh, but, well, but, but I mean, you know, I, I don't know whether it's just innately, you know, the physical strength of men, I, I don't, I don't really know, but it is true, and we do work harder. Uh, modern day equivalents. Yeah. Modern day it, equivalents. What do you have? Any modern day equivalents to the that live at the capacity that these women lived at? Why aren't they more pronounced than they are? Right. And that's philosophical and psychological. Logical. And it's the difference between men and women you're getting into, which is a, a ongoing debate right. since the beginning of man. Well, you know, and I, I, I honestly, um, uh, I, I've been involved in, um, uh, my background is really in marketing and communication. And, um, I did a lot of, uh, uh, qualitative studies with children and toys and observing, um, small children and how they they play in very different ways and um you know we talk about wanting to give girls boys toys and boys girls when you see them and they're little and what they do they do what they do and boys do boy things and girls do girl things you know like girls like uh like my little pony they want to brush the, the the pony's tail they like Polly pocket they like compartments you know like these little womb like things boys like erector sets i mean it, it it it's amazing when you see that and you know i don't want to say it's innate but you watch this and they're so small and that's all you're really seeing so well it maybe it is i mean so but it it is really yeah, amazing, yeah. Right, but the point is they are different, and feminists have a hard time acknowledging that. So, uh, so how 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 about if I just um, jump in with a different question? Okay. All right. Um, I was hoping that you might delve into the history of some of the more ruthless women. Lucrezia Borgia, for example, you mentioned her, but um, I've always been fascinated with the arts of poisoning, for example, and assassination. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I don't know that I, I, uh, um, part of what I did here was I, I'm really using a lot of what I wrote about in my book as a springboard because, I mean, and one of the things that I did when I wrote my book is I didn't have a theme in mind. I just, if you imagine each of the es essays as little tesserae, 
I was just like little tesserae, tesserae, tesserae. And then I began to observe some bigger stories. And um, I, I'm an art history like nut. And so I wrote a lot about this art and I began to think about this. And I mean, Lucretia is interesting um, in as much as, you know, she was such a pawn to her family. And I mean, she was treacherous, but she's also like a victim of being, you know, horse traded for political purposes um, as well. And, uh, you know, so uh, she was a victim and you know, she was a perpetrator and she was surrounded by a lot of bad behavior, you know. So anyway. I was wondering how on earth a rape trial could take seven months. You you can kind of see it with an asbestos trial or something. But. Well, I, I think times have changed. I mean, we're so used to 24-hour news cycle. And, uh, you know, and, and it was probably like a really, like, big, like, breakthrough, like, first time ever kind of kind of thing. But it, you know, it did go on for a long time. And, you know, to me, the most interesting part of that is it didn't matter. She testified, you know, they examined her, but it was only like when some guy came up and said, you know, he bragged to me, you know, that was the thing. It kind of didn't matter what she put. I mean, so that, 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 that's a, that's kind of a, that's what's always gotten me about that. It was on, you know, the, the testimony of another man that, um, convicted him. You referred to the education, that they were more well-educated, some of these women. Is there anything in the Italian educational system that developed their artistic or their spiritual development through the educational system that brought out these artistic um, capabilities? Well, I have this whole other theory about Italian cultural DNA. Okay, so I have a theory about that. It's a little like off the track. But I mean, when, when I'm talking about a classical education, they learned Greek, they learned Latin. Um, but one of the things that I believe is that, uh, cultures have, uh, DNA. Just like we all individually have DNA, I think a culture can have DNA. And, um, it's very interesting because, uh, in Italy, um, they, uh, the, 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 the aesthetic and the beauty, uh, it's always, um, function with beauty this combination of like pre- uh, uh, creative problem solving like if you think about a roman arch it solves the problem they need to make building more efficient but it's also beautiful and you know even something like the vespa it's like cheap affordable maneuverable transportation but you know it belongs in the you know museum of modern art it's a masterpiece of design engineering but uh, Italians don't just do beautiful things to be beautiful. They uh, solve problems in creative, beautiful ways, whether it's Olivetti, a beautiful office uh, machine or, or something. But um, it, it's not just, oh, we appreciate beauty. Um, there's a, a practical side of it, and Italians are very practical um, because they there's a term, it's called aranjarsi. We have to... Aranjarsi, which means we have to like how you arrange yourself, how you maneuver around situations. And they've always had a lot of turmoil in the peninsula, lots of change, lots of conflict. And they always have to be flexible and pivot and move and change. And so they respond to circumstances in ways that are really create creative. And, and to me, they're just very open and receptive. 
I think it's just through their history. You know, I mean, I think like, you know, Russians had like, you know, thousands of years of oppression and like they don't have it, like they have trouble self-governing because they're like incapacitated to be like independent. So, but, so, and this is why Italians also can't govern themselves because they're very, you know, they're very, you know, they just can't live because they're always, everybody's doing their own thing and they can't do their own thing together. So, um, it, it makes for great creativity, but it makes for very like disorganized government, you know? So anyway, you're welcome. Thank you, Carla. Thank you very much. This concludes our program at the Commonwealth Club tonight. Thank you all for coming.